The horses are at the gate. And they're off. Welcome to Winning Ponies. With a weekend coming up, this is the spot to be for news, handicapping, and spotlights featuring the winners behind horse racing today. Now, here's your host, John Engelhart, racing's regular guy. And thanks so much for joining us once again. Of course, we are closing in week by week towards the Breeders' Cup. All the big preps are out of the way, and now it's just a matter of wait. I think I might take a little trip down to Keeneland this weekend, see if I can't catch some of them in the morning workouts. We'll have to take the heavy overcoat. It's been a bit chilly in the Midwest uh, and Kentucky which are one and the same, uh, for the last uh, couple of days. So uh, nonetheless, it'll be it'd be great to see the horses train there. A- a- as has happened in recent times, a lot of horses kind of stick around Keeneland after the meet closes and the action moves to Churchill. Of course, uh, Churchill does like it on the grounds, uh, Breeders' Cup week. But trainers still have the option to stay at Keeneland, where they say it's very relaxing when the racing's over. It's just kind of a nice atmosphere. Any of you that have been there know what I'm talking about. I sing its praises at least twice a year during the fall and the spring. But it is a very relaxing, a nice atmosphere, and the horses just relish it. And you have your option. You've got the dirt main track, and you've got the synthetic training track which is down in a beautiful little area. You can see a farm in the background. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see. I hope to get down there and see them and then move over. I'll be uh, working with my friend Jenny Reese when it comes to Breeders' Cup Week. Looking very much forward to that. I want to thank our friends at Woodbine Entertainment who sponsor Winning Ponies. And, of course, you wouldn't want to go to the track without our easy win forms, uh, very uh, inexpensive, and uh, you can get a big bang back for your buck. Let's take a look at some of the races we hit on this weekend. Just yesterday at Keeneland, hit a 50-cent pick four for 2,661. Don't go away. Also yesterday, two races later, a $1 Super 5 at Keeneland, $4,150. So we've been hot in the center of bluegrass country. So pull down the easy win forms. Uh, This week, we're going to be going to a very exciting card, and that is at Belmont Park, where they're showcasing all of the New York breads. But let me tell you, every race has a nice purse and is very, very competitive. And to help us with that, a name you should be familiar with if you watch the results of the handicapping contest, Jonathan Kinchin uh, finished second just last week uh, at uh, Keeneland in their handicapping contest. And so we're going to tackle a few of those New York races. Of course, Kinchin, he's probably about 36 now, a, a realtor took to the contest world and just set the place on fire about uh, five years ago uh, where he won four national handicapping championships and the main handicap championship presented by the NHC Tour and the Daily Racing Forum. So we'll talk to Jonathan about his approach to the races in New York and his approach to handicapping contests versus live racing when he's there for himself at a day at the races or he's looking at another card how does he approach that versus when you 
delve into the contest world. Well, an interesting individual who has delved into one of racing's most mysterious cold cases. I'm sure there'll be a movie someday if they ever find out the ending. And I'm talking about the famous Shergar. You have to go back to the early 80s when he won the Epsom Derby by 10 links. He was retired to stud and he was just getting ready to start his second season and uh, he disappeared from Balamany Stud in Ireland. And uh, a ransom was put out. They wanted $2 million. And the ransom, however, was never paid. And Shergar, to this day, has never been found. And who's going to tell us about that? Well, we're going to talk to the author of a great book that is out right now. And I am so blessed to be holding a copy in my hand. It's called Taking Shergar. Thoroughbred Racing's most famous cold case. And uh, Milton Toby has been with us before. Uh, he's led a very interesting life. Uh, one as an equine photographer, and then one as a photographer for Soldiers of Fortune magazine. I remember him telling me that one day he was there to take photos of a, a raid or whatever, and uh, bullets were zipping over his head, and he said, You know what? Not sure I really want to go all chips in on this. <laughs> and uh, he left Soldiers of Fortune magazine and uh, came back to the United States, not again as an equine photographer, but ended up getting his law degree. And he's a noted attorney in Lexington, but he's come up with some great books on racing uh, since he has changed his career in so many uh Ways and Shapes, I should say, but very well respected. Many of his books have uh, uh, won awards, and uh, Milton is just uh, a great author, journalist, and attorney. So uh, we'll be talking with Milton Toby from the Bluegrass. He's located in Georgetown, just north of Lexington, where my friends and old friends reside. And the good thing is, is there's going to be a lecture series, and uh, Milt's going to be there. It's Tuesday, October 23rd at 6 30 and um, hey it's it's for me because it's free open to the public and he's also going to be signing books and you can bet he's going to be signing the one i've got in my hand right now so bill toby and jonathan kinchin are our uh, guests uh not to forget this week it's the maryland million you know this uh, this series of races. Another one that's great because you get to compare horses uh, that have raced against each other throughout the season. You know I'm a big fan of the state bred programs, but the Maryland Millions uh, will be on uh, the plate, and uh, the, the classic is the main goal goal here. Uh, Flash McCall, uh, he'd like to uh, come back in that race. Uh, it's $150,000, the Maryland Million Classic Stakes. Third consecutive year if he wins it this year. Now, this is another one where you definitely want to uh, uh, get your easy win forms because uh, while the Classic is, we'll say, the highlight uh, of what is now the 33rd edition of the Jim McKay Maryland Million Day program, it's just one of seven stakes and four starter stakes that compromise Maryland's day at the races. The day kicks off with the Maryland Million registered bred distaff, followed by a handicap starter stakes, the distaff handicap, the lady stakes, a sprint handicap, nursery stakes, turf starter handicap, starter handicap, lassie stakes, and turf stakes. Whew, hope they get good weather. 
That is a mouthful. But uh, anyhow, don't miss the Maryland Millions and pull down your easy win forms to try to help you out with that one because I can't. Well, uh, John Godston trained Enable. Looks like we'll be making the trip from Europe, and we'll see if she can earn her stripes in the United States. Um, it's a history-making challenge for Enable. Uh, back uh, on October 16th, it was revealed that she will bid to become the first horse to follow pre Arc de Triomphe victory with success in the Breeders' Cup. I know some others have tried, but Enable has really exploded uh, on on the scene right now. And uh, a lot of people feel that she would be one of the favorites for the Breeders' Cup turf. Uh, it does look like she's coming, so I won't say if she comes. Now, there have been eight, eight ARC winners uh, who have been down in the Breeders' Cup with uh, Shaki runner-up back in 2001. And uh, according to the racing manager, uh, Teddy Grimthorpe, he just says, the way Enable's season has panned out, this race is a logical progression. She's come out of the arc fine. She seems to have recovered and taken it all well. And from that point of view, we have to be very pleased with her. So it will be great to see if we can't uh, uh, get an arc winner to come over and win the Breeders' Cup turf over here. Now, she's a four-year-old now, and uh, we're going to find out after the Breeders' Cup, there's going to be a decision made that she could potentially become the first horse to win three arcs. She's won two of them now, and they're going to make that decision after the Breeders' Cup. So uh, it will be very interesting to see her with us in in the Breeders' Cup. And I just want to give a shout out to Patricia McQueen. Remember, it was about a year ago we had her on uh, when she does calendars for Secretariat's Living Progeny, and she's putting a new one out. Of course, everything she makes goes to charity. Uh, Very interesting. Uh, There are five living sons and daughters included in the calendar. of course, uh, on the cover will be Fast Market, the oldest known living offspring of Secretariat at 32, and he made 144 starts. Then also it will feature uh, Torbay, a full brother to Pacific Classic winner Tinner's Way. He's 31 now. At 30 is Ball champion the dam of perfect soul grade one winner then you got uh, the stakes place border run who's now 30 who's a full brother to terlingua and pancha vio i could go on and on but i can't but the good thing is is that they needed to uh to fill the calendar out and they got help from my friends at secretariat the tony leonard collection so there will be photos of secretariat in there, I always uh, congratulate those guys for the great things they did pres- preserving Tony's legacy. All right, real quick, last week I was on the air here with Rich Ruda. Uh, took the trip uh, up to Thistledown. It was a very kind of brisk day, but the, the rains didn't come except early in the morning, so it made for a muddy trek. The horse we both liked in the sprint got the job done. Altissimo, who will be crowned the sprint champion in the Buckeye State, beats Rivers Run Deep, who was going for a third consecutive $150,000 Best of Ohio sprint. Then in the $150,000 John Galbraith, it was Drill It had never been been beyond six furlongs but trainer robert gorham got the job done won by something like 16 and three quarter lengths in the uh 
the juvenile stakes. This is the boys' version. The winner was Diamond Dust, who's owned by Windstar Farm and Blazing Meadows. Of course, Blazing Meadows is the farm owned by top state trainer Tim Ham. He's developed a really good relationship with them. Diamond Dust getting the job done. Just got beaten to prep for this race by a neck, but it was at Thistle, but got the job done after veering out towards the grandstand in the stretch. But Jackie Louis Colin didn't do anything really to correct him. He just kind of let him go on because he didn't want him to lose his momentum, he told me. Then Mo Don't Know, two-time Ohio Horse of the Year, dominates in the mile and a quarter, best of Ohio endurance. Boy, he's got the ticket here. It's his third year in a row that he has won this race. Um, then we'll go to the best of Ohio distaff. A very interesting race. It was the horse I picked, who I thought was going to be eight to one, went down to. I believe it was uh, uh, seven to two, and the gates open. Um, but the, the big favorite was Heaven Has My Nikki, who ended up running four. She got jostled around at the start. Um, it was kind of interesting in this race in that after they went out on the track, they're warming up, they're warming up. We're in the winter circle all looking at each other, wondering what the heck is happening. And uh, the horses are warming up, warming up. And all of a sudden, we realize the gate was stuck. The tractor was broke. The backup tractor didn't have a hitch. Some of the assistant starters left. We've heard a lot of different stories. It seemed to me like it was a mechanical problem and that they had a hard time getting the second tractor hitched up. I'm guessing it was close to 45 minutes, closer to an hour maybe. They called all the horses back off the track, had them walk uh, the paddock area, and uh, then uh, finally – the sun was going down. You can't stop that big ball. And all of a sudden, we start, We started seeing the, it move. Everybody applauded. And then take charge Delilah with a great ride by John McKee. Came from 15 links out of it and nailed him at the wire. Congratulations to trainer Tom Drury, who's training now for Star Ladies Racing. All right, that's a look at the races we handicapped last week here on Winning Ponies. Right now, we're going to take a break, and we're going to be back with the author of Taking Sugar, Milton. Toby. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. And they're off! What? Can't make it to the track? You can still get all the action with winningponies.com, the home of the easy win form. The most accurate predictions on thoroughbreds, quarters, and Arabian horses at most American and Canadian tracks. Whether it be the Triple Crown, Breeders' Cup, Travers, Haskell, or your daily races, don't worry. Let winningponies.com make some money for you. Pick, bet, and cheer on live racing from Woodbine and Mohawk Park. Thoroughbred and harness action. The wagers are just the beginning. Watch award-winning broadcasts covering both breeds. Incredible battles contested over the most unique grass course in North America. Experience the full fields with over 130 thoroughbred and 160 live harness days. Get access to free handicapping material and join the ranks of Woodbine and Mohawk Park players from all over the globe. For more information, visit woodbine.com. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com you're tuned in to winning ponies with your host john engelhart got a tip for us need a tip from us if you want to talk with john or his guests the phone lines are now open toll free at 1-888-346-9144 that's 1-888-346-9144 or you can send an email to show at winningponies.com now back to winning ponies with john engelhart all right and with me is award-winning author Milton C. Toby, and uh, last week was like Christmas for me. You can just scratch the the the, the tree and the balls on it and everything else because I got a copy of Taking Shergar in the mail. Just an amazing book. Uh, a, a very. Uh, uh, it brings about a lot of questions. It's not, you know, it's not like you're going to have a definitive ending, but you're going to have a lot of good theories put out by Milton Toby. Uh, with me right now, Milton Toby. Milt, how are you doing? I'm doing well, John. Thanks for having me on the program tonight. Now, now, Milt, if there ever isn't definitive ending to the story. It should obviously become a movie. Are you going to be like the set director or you know the consultant for it? I think you should be. I would love for this to be a movie. There actually has already been one. It was not very well received because in the end, a little kid found Shergar and they and he rode the horse off the cliffs of Moor into the ocean. Oh but my God! <laughs> You're kidding. No, it's, it opened in one theater in London around Epsom Derby time a few years ago and got terrible reviews. And you can still get it on uh, DVD, however. Well, it's, it's kind of like when uh, Disney did the Secretariat movie and never mentioned a horse called Reva Ridge. <laughs> yeah, a lot like that. But anyhow, let, let, let's get back to what, what you're doing. First of all, and I'm going to repeat this, okay? Uh, of course, I'm really good at repeating myself anyhow. But you are going to be... You're throwing a free gig uh, at the Keeneland Library Lecture Series, uh, I believe, on October 23rd. That's why I wanted to get you in tonight. So that's Mm -hmm. only uh, six days from now, and it's a Tuesday, and it's a free event at 630 at the Keeneland Library. Did I get that right? You got it absolutely right. It's going to be a nice evening. You know, a lot of people will be in town for Keeneland, and Tuesday is a dark day, so they'll need something to do in the evening. So. And it's also, yeah, the Phasic Tipton sale will be going on too, not far from there. So uh, it's it's a great reason. I know we do have a lot of listeners from the central Kentucky area. So if they're either down there because they traveled for Keeneland or they're taking in the sale, when when it's over, just turn your car around, get over to a great place, the Keeneland Library at 630. You'll not only get to hear probably some of what you're going to hear in tonight's interview, but you're also going to have a chance to get a limited number of copies and uh milt don't be surprised if you don't see a little short bearded guy in the back row because uh, i think i'm going to be down there next tuesday that would be great and there's also going to be a, a little reception after the lecture so there's something for everybody very good if it's free it's for me you know that so absolutely um, 
<laughs> well, l- let's get to taking cigar. As you know, we have teased this in the past, but now it has come to fruition and that you have co- completed the book. And what I think is really interesting, um, as, I, as I read into some of the research about the book and not just the book itself, is that you, being an attorney, being a student of uh, thoroughbred racing, is that uh, you utilize a vast body of evidence uh, that a lot of it wasn't published for the first time. And uh, I think that's kind of interesting that some of the information you got had not even previously been considered in the case. Uh, and the most uh, interesting is the involvement of the Mobius Group, a parapsychology research organization hired to assist with the search. That's unbelievable. That was the the most interesting thing that I found in, in the research, I think, because, as you say, I, I had access to boxes of material that literally nobody had opened uh, for almost 30, more than 30 years. And it, it was a secret. The part of the deal was that nobody would tell anyone about this because the, the lawyer who arranged it and some of the insurers were uh, concerned about the, the public relations image of hiring psychics to, to get involved. And yeah, I, I stumbled across them through the help of a, an insurance underwriter at Lloyd's who said, you, got, you need to look up the Mobius Group. And I spent a year trying to figure out who and what the Mobius Group was and finally did. Well, Milt, as, as you know, you and I are about in the same age range. This happened in the early 80s. Uh, can you briefly paint with a broad brush the scenario that you are writing about? Sure. The... In 1983, Shergar was certainly one of the most famous horses in the world, and he also was probably one of the most valuable. He was bred and raced by the Aga Khan, who is clearly one of the, the richest people in the world. He had he had a, a modest two-year-old career and then won the Epsom Derby by 10 lengths in, when he was a three-year-old in 1981. And that's a record that still hasn't been beaten. That's the widest margin ever in over 200 years of the Epsom Derby. And wow. then he continued on. He, he was winning his races as a three-year-old by, by 10, 12 lengths each time out. And and the question was, where is Shergar going to go to stud? There there was no doubt that he was going to be retired at the end of his three-year-old year. And the Aga Khan had um, very lucrative offers to send the horse to the U.S., but he decided to stand him at his own farm in, in Ireland, outside of Kildare. And... The horse was syndicated for 10 million pounds, which is, you know, a shade under $20 million based on the exchange rate then. He stood his first season, you know, he had 34, would produce 34 live foals. But early in 1983, he, he went missing on February the 8th, 1983. It was a miserably cold day. An armed gang made their way onto Valley Manny Stud, where the horse was. They, they carried Shergar off in a horse trailer. They kidnapped the stud groom. And that was the start of the story. And you know, th- there we were. The, the most famous horse in the world was gone. The police weren't notified for over eight hours. And by then, the investigation was doomed from the start. You know, in, in eight hours, driving fairly slowly, you can get to anywhere in the Republic of Ireland. There yes. was no chance of ever finding him. Uh- well, you say there, there was no chance. Now, uh, I, I understand that uh, with your research, you under you uncovered a couple new theories. 
Well, not, what I was mostly interested in, because everybody knows the, the basic facts. Shergar was stolen. It probably was the Irish Republican Army. What I wanted to do was to find out, to answer a couple of questions, why was Shergar a horse that valuable in Ireland in the first place when he could have been in the U.S.? And if he had been exported to the U.S., we wouldn't be talking about him now. We might be talking about him as a great sire, but not as a, a true crime story. And then the other question was, why was he a target for the Irish Republican Army? You know, why did they need to steal a horse and, and hold him for ransom? So I was really looking for a circumstantial evidence case. You, know, you mentioned I'm an attorney. So I was trying to figure out a way to establish that the IRA was behind it without ever having a confession. You know, the IRA has never accepted responsibility there have never been any arrests. There have never been any charges. The, it's still an open case as far as the Irish police are concerned. And because it's an open case, they won't let you look at their files. So I was looking at the, the politics of, of Northern Ireland and the troubles and the economics of, of the Republic of Ireland and how those two things, both starting in 1969, collided in 1983 that made the theft of Shergar inevitable. So that was the the real impetus for me was not to write about the theft. A, a lot has been written about the theft, and it doesn't make up you know, a, a large portion of the book. Most of the book is about the politics leading up to it and then the aftermath, uh, the battles over insurance, for example, and then the Mobius group getting involved. So my goal was to take a story that people think they know but really don't and, and really get into it. That, that was one of the treats about working with the University Press of Kentucky. They're, they're an academic press primarily. So they required a substantial amount of research and something that would go beyond just another horse book. It was great fun. Well, I've read several of your books, and you always go above and beyond uh, making sure that they are uh, detailed uh, to the T. Now, Milt, as you know, you know, you can't steal an apple as a kid without word finally getting back to your parents sooner or later. Um, isn't it amazing that considering how many people probably had to be involved in this between the decision makers and the people that physically took the horse and it's, uh, 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 I'll, I'll say groom, um, that over all these years, no one's leaked anything? That's the puzzle, and that's why I would really love to see the police file. So there has to be information there that, that has never been made public and isn't available to anyone. That was one of the most frustrating things about this research. I kept getting information that would lead me to something, and then you'd always get, always get stopped at the police files. You know, there was never any access to those. The, the best information and the closest thing to an official police statement was a, well, two things. Uh, there, uh, Sean O'Callaghan was an informer for the British, for the, the Irish police. He had worked for the IRA and then, you know, changed sides. And a few weeks after Shergar was taken, he talked to IRA men who were involved in the theft. And uh, Sean O'Callaghan, in his bio autobiography, it's called The Informer, he, he spent a lot of detail explaining what happened. He said that the horse got fractious and was injured and was killed within a, a day or two after he was stolen. And the negotiations continued as if he, the horse was still alive. But this was a person who had been a you know, a traitor, an informer at least, and he's lied for his entire life, and why would you believe that? 
and that was one of the issues. But I came across a, an affidavit that one of the Irish police officers had completed. He had been involved in the investigation, and in his signed statement, he said that he had reviewed all the information in Sean O'Callaghan's book, and based on his knowledge and his part of the investigation and his review of the records, that it was all accurate. That's the closest I could come to an official police statement, but I think it's pretty good. Well, it just uh, it's just amazing that the bones haven't been found, or somebody did a deathbed confession, uh, something along those lines. I'm 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 dying for the the end, and uh, and when there is again, you know that this thing should be on the big screen. It, it's amazing, and because as you know from your trips to Ireland, it would be such a majestic place to film this thing in the dark with the sun setting or in the morning uh, with, with it coming up. Uh, you know, uh, it, it would make such a beautiful place for it to be. Not to mention the scintillating victories of Shigar during his race days, if they could potentially reenact that. Uh, this thing is made for the screen. I just, I just hope there's an ending. It won't be happy, but there needs to be an ending. There absolutely does. And one of the issues that came up after he was stolen was the insurance disputes that I mentioned. Uh, there were 35 members of the syndicate, and each member of the syndicate had insurance, typically mortality policies, and most of them also had theft insurance. If they had theft insurance, they got paid. If they only had mortality, they didn't because there was no proof the horse was dead because they never found the remains, never found any any information that would guarantee that Shergar, in fact, had been killed. So, yeah, you're right. It needs to have an ending, and it would. I would love to be involved in figuring that out. Well, Milton C. Toby, I hope to see you next Tuesday at Keeneland. Uh, it's at the uh, Keeneland Library. Uh, the It will start at 6.30. Uh, there's a reception after. And uh, I'm going to have my book with me. I want you to put your John Henry on it for me. Okay, Milt? Absolutely. I hope I see you in a few days. Okay, real quick. Uh, it's We're getting close to Christmas, believe it or not. Um, if people want to order this book, where do they go? Uh, it's available on Amazon. It's available at Barnes & Noble. You can get copies from the publisher of the University Press of Kentucky. If you want a signed copy, you can get a copy from me at my website. That's milt.toby at miltoncitoby.com. So those are the options. The, the, the best price is probably Amazon, but like I say, I can get you a signed edition if you want to go through my website or drop me an email. It's the same address. Or show up at Keeneland with your book in hand, right? That'll do it. <laughs> All right, Milton C. Toby, uh, Taking Shigar is the name of the book. You can uh, talk to him in person at the Keeneland Library uh, next Tuesday, the 23rd at 6.30. Thanks so much for being with us, Milt. Thanks, John. I appreciate you having me. Okay, hope to see you Tuesday. Coming up next, uh, the ex- handicapper extraordinaire, none other then Jonathan Kinchin will be with us. Let's get going. Cut the commercial. Back with Jonathan. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. And there. 
What? Can't make it to the track? You can still get all the action with winningponies.com, the home of the easy win form. The most accurate predictions on thoroughbreds, quarters, and Arabian horses at most American and Canadian tracks. Whether it be the Triple Crown, Breeders' Cup, Travers, Haskell, or your daily races, don't worry. Let winningponies.com make some money for you. Pick, bet, and cheer on live racing from Woodbine and Mohawk Park. Thoroughbred and harness action. The wagers are just the beginning. Watch award-winning broadcasts covering both breeds. Incredible battles contested over the most unique grass course in North America. Experience the full fields with over 130 thoroughbred and 160 live harness days. Get access to free handicapping material and join the ranks of Woodbine and Mohawk Park players from all over the globe. For more information, visit woodbine.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned in to Winning Ponies with your host, John Engelhart. Got a tip for us? Need a tip from us? If you want to talk with John or his guests, the phone lines are now open toll-free at 1-888-346-9144. That's 1-888-346-9144. Or you can send an email to show at winningponies.com. Now, back to Winning Ponies with John Engelhart. All right, and with me, Jonathan Kinchin. Uh, you may recall he was crowned a top handicapper in the world. And now I had to go back. The, when I first talked to Jonathan was after he, he won his uh, first national handicapping championship. So I'm trying to update some of his info, which I need to have him do it, not me. But uh, Jonathan, can, can, welcome first to uh, Winning Ponies. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day for us. Oh, thanks so much. It's, uh, I'm glad to be back with you guys. All right, two questions. I, I know I get to see you on DRF.com, uh, and uh, I wanted to give our listeners uh, kind of an idea of, like, if you have a steady schedule or what, what segments that they can find you on. Absolutely. I, I, uh, I show up on Out of the Gate for a, for a play of the day. Uh, I think Out of the Gate comes out Friday, so it's a little video you can find on, on DRF.com. Uh, I do that every week, and then Pete, uh, Peter Thomas Fortell and I do the, the DRF Players Podcast on Tuesday and on Friday. On Tuesday, we do kind of a recap from the weekend and maybe just some, some evergreen uh, handicapping topics. Uh, Friday, we, we, we'll, we'll talk about what's going on in, in the sport, and then um, also some, some uh, kind of some uh, a preview for the, some mistakes that are going to be coming up that weekend, and, and that's pretty much the general vibe of, of the show twice a week. Now, obviously, unlike somebody like uh, Matt Bernier, uh, you're not full-time at the forum, so none of your activities there prohibit you from competing in contests. No, I'm, I, uh, we, when, when I first started working with them, my, my uh, agreement has always been clear that I am not an employee. So uh, when they were affiliated with the NHC, that was a little bit, uh, a little bit bigger of a deal. Um, now, with, with some of the contests they have on their site, 
uh, you know, I'll play uh, occasionally. A lot of those are pick and pray, so the pray, you know, the picks are out ahead of time. So there's, you know, no uh, no reason for anyone to suggest there's any funny business. But uh, no, I, it's uh, it's 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 always been a lot of fun. You know, the first time they ever asked me to do something, it was a real honor. And and uh, uh, any other time I get to do something, it's always a, a good time. Now, uh, <clears throat> do you still find time for your real life as a realtor? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I I have a real estate license, but my main business is we, we own some apartment complexes here in town. So uh, the nature of that business gives me some free time to be able to, to move around and, and, and uh, I can actually do what I need to do from kind of anywhere. There's one or two days a week where I kind of need to be around town. And uh, so it, uh, it it works out good. It's a good combination of, of, uh, of a career and a... Uh, a hobby that uh, has some financial uh, financial benefit to it. Well, that flexibility has allowed you travel uh, to the uh, Vatican of horse racing, Keeneland, uh, for the last two weekends, and I do believe you came in second in their contest last week. Yeah, third. I, I was uh, I was I got nailed. Uh, I was in second going into the last, and then uh, a buddy of mine actually, so it all worked out. Blake uh, Blake Jesse happens to be the uh, racing manager for Luch Racing Stables. He he got second and I was third, but uh all all the same it was a, it was a, definitely it was a good time. I was second last year, last fall, or last spring I guess in the Keeneland contest. So uh finished in the money the last three Keeneland contests. So that's always a it's always a fun contest. Jim Goodman and his staff uh, at Keeneland do an unbelievable job taking care of the horse players and and uh, anytime I get a chance to get there I I uh, make sure that I do so. Well, I was with Jake Blessy, uh, Jake's boss, uh, or Jesse's boss, uh, last weekend on Saturday, uh, Ron Pellucci, uh, to watch his uh, horse win the $150,000 Best of Ohio Endurance for the third year in a row. So he's kind of, I guess he's his kind of, shall I say, racing manager, for lack of a better word. Absolutely, yeah. You know, Blake's, uh, you know, obviously a, a phenomenal handicapper, so I think there's a lot of uh, aspects of, of Lucha's stable that Blake can help with when it comes to, uh, and, you know, advice and suggestions when it comes to placing horses and, and uh, tracking horses for, for the vast claiming operation that they have and uh, and then just kind of handling some of the ins and outs, the logistics stuff with travel and transportation and, and getting deals done as well. With, you know, Lucha's a very active guy, and, and Blake's, uh, Blake does a... A good job helping him in all those in all those arenas of, of, of having a stable like he does. Well, let, let's get back to you. We're talking with John Kinchin, who's once was crowned the top handicapper in the world, and still is a, a consistently uh, winning contest or at or near the top in the contest he enters. Jonathan, explain to me the difference, or to our listeners, really, how you approach a day at the races with your buddies. And a contest. Yeah, it's, it's tricky. I, I I try not to differ too much, but there, you know you, you have to be honest with yourself that there is some differences. Obviously, uh, uh, when you, when you're at the racetrack, if if you want to show up and make one wager and you win and you go home, uh, no one's going to argue with you that, that you didn't have a good day. When it comes to the contest, a lot of these contests have uh, wagering requirements, which I'm a big fan of. I have no problem with where. Uh, they want you to to make it the betting challenge, the handicapping challenge 
where you you are uh, you're given some parameters and some rules to evaluate who's kind of the the best player on the day, uh, and they want to take a larger sample size rather than just one race. So you, you know, some of the events will have uh, three or four race minimums with a five hundred dollar or two hundred dollar minimum on each of those races, or or whatever it might be. So uh, the Keelan contest is actually unique, and it's one of the only contests where in one of the last two races you have to bet half of your bankroll. Uh, there's a guy that, uh, by the name of Tommy Masses, he, he won the Breeders' Cup betting challenge, uh, I think, in 2015. He, he had a nice little score early in the day. and got to $20,000, and so in one of the last two races, he had to bet half of his bankroll. Wow. Now, a lot of people would think that's a pretty shocking thing, but I, I think some sophisticated bettors with some sophisticated betting strategies can can do some things that are a little bit, uh, a little bit, uh, put, put a little bit less risk into the equation. And, uh, and so I'm assuming that's what Tommy did because he maintained his lead and went ahead and won that contest. Um, now, Jonathan, let's rewind a little bit. Your entrance into handicapping, when did it start? At what tracks or what attracted you to it? Well, you know, when I was in uh, in, in high school, uh, they, they built, well, maybe I was a little bit younger than that, they built Lone Star Park right, right around the corner where I grew up in Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, my dad grew up in Detroit. He, him and his buddies used to go to Hazel Park all the time in Detroit. And, and that you know, my dad's a, a gambler by nature, and I think he just had fun doing that. When they opened up Lone Star, he liked to, to come and, and, and hang out there. So I would go with him. And uh, I was usually annoyed by the adventure. I, I, I didn't usually like to go. And, but, but I realized that uh, if I told my dad I wanted to bet a horse, he would give me $20. And so I, I, I you know, I started to enjoy going. I, I saw a lot of guys kind of playing the puzzle. I fell in love with the puzzle once I started playing it. Um, and then there's probably three events in racing that have kind of molded me to where I am now. And, and the first one was when I was in college, I bet five across the board on Giacomo, won $500, and uh, started buying a bunch of books and reading Steve Davidowitz's books and, and buying on speed. Uh, and then the second event was probably uh, a pick four that I hit uh, when Drosselmeyer won the Belmont for $84,000. And, and that wow. money kind of turned into the money that I that I took my lumps with learning the game and, and, and trying to become a better uh, horse player and handicapper. And then in 2015, that year kind of as a whole, uh, where I, I, I won the NHC tour, uh, where I had a great day on, on Derby day, winning six figures when American Farrell won, won, uh, won the Kentucky Derby and then going on to win the, you know, the NHC tour that year. Uh, it, it kind of propelled me into where I am now of, 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 you know, playing in all these events as often as I possibly can. Great story. I love it. I love it. Well, uh, one more question before we get into a couple races uh, on New York Day at, at Belmont Park. Um, if if you can even answer this question, how differently do you approach a turf race versus a main track race, handicapping wise? Um, you know, I, I look at them completely differently. One of the things that uh, I did last year in the NHC for people that aren't familiar, it's a uh, uh, and, and I could get this wrong. The rules have changed so much, but approximately uh, every, there's a three. You know, there's two days of the tournament, and you uh, three days if you make it to the kind of the final round. But two days of the tournament where 
you have about eight optional races and seven mandatory races where every one of the rooms playing those seven races, and then you can make a selection of your other eight. For both days, I elected to just play dirt races. And the reason why is kind of the answer to your question is that I feel like the dirt racing is much more predictable. There's a lot less randomness in dirt racing. Uh, it's, it's a lot less about the trip of the horse and more about the ability, the speed, uh, the fitness of the horse. And so I've always found that dirt racing is a lot more, uh, for me, it's a lot more handicappable. Um, with turf racing, and a lot of guys like this, there's a lot more chaos. So that third, fourth, and fifth best horse on, play, on paper, in my opinion, has a much better chance of winning a turf race based on trip and saving ground and losing ground. Uh, then, and, and then pace, is, I think, is also a little bit more uh, impactful when it comes to a, uh, to a turf race. Um, so, you know, I, I, I lean towards wanting to play dirt. However, in these contests, I, I, I'm involved in a lot of races that, that have turf races in them. So I, it's not like it's something I can't do. It's just my preference is dirt, and, and, and that's just because I think it's a little bit more predictable. Well, Jonathan Kinchin, that is that is eye-opening and very insightful. It really is. It, it makes perfect sense to me. Uh, every, everything you said, because uh, it does seem like you know, uh, turf racing does have more unpredictability, and I do think there's more chances to get in trouble. Uh, Mostly because, except for Woodbine, uh, most turf tracks are inside the dirt course and uh, can make it a little things a little bit tight. And also, you have the unpredictability factor that some, you'll get turf races where several horses of the field are trying it for the first time, and uh, it just a- adds one more, you know, fly in the ointment, shall I say, um, in, in trying to ferret out winners. It's 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 always easy to go back and figure it out it's like yeah it's first time on the turf but look you know he's you know got all this great turf blood in his pedigree and it figured anyhow thank you very much for that uh, insightful information because it does make sense jonathan absolutely and i and i have some other you know some i can elaborate that on, on that a little bit and i think i will when we talk about the third race at belmont there's some 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 ideas about turf racing that i also think make it complicated that i can tie in when we get to that race well, we're going to get to that race right now. It's the $200,000 Mohawk on the turf. Again, this day is uh, set aside for New York breads. But I'll tell you what, Jonathan, uh, maybe 15 years ago you could poo-poo New York bread. You can't anymore. They're right there on the national stage and international stage, for that matter, when you look at some of the races in Dubai. So I just throw out the fact that, oh, it's a New York bred. These are legitimate horses, and you just look at their earnings, and then it bears it. So we're going on the grass, a mile and a 16th in the Mohawk. Uh, Give me your insight into this race. You're absolutely right about the New York breads, and I think diversify and and mine your biscuits, like you mentioned, in Dubai are are two of the poster childs for the – the kind of the, the changing of the guard when it comes to that. You know, this race is, it, it, you know, it, it's tricky for a couple of reasons. And, and one of the things that, that, that PTS and I talk about on the podcast all the time is the jockey's dilemma. And uh, in turf racing, I think it exists a lot more. And, and what we mean by that is that you, as a, as a, as a horse player, we're always looking at the idea that pace makes the race. So you, you see these turf horses that give you the appearance that they're going to be loose on the lead, 
and then you watch the race, they go 50 to the half, and they still get beat, and you're asking yourself, how the heck did that happen? The ho- I was right. The horse was going to be loose on the lead. He still got beat. What we think happens in those situations is, 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 is when they get out on the front end, they don't go quite fast enough to use their weapon, and they invite those horses that have a better turn of foot or a, a better stamina into the race. We, we call it inviting them into the race. Black Tide, the nine horse in here, is not one of those horses that does that. When he has the ability to go to the front and he's got that advantage, he usually takes advantage of it. And uh, if you look at the PP, he's, you know, at the first call, he's four clear, four clear, five clear, four clear. Uh, he takes advantage of that. Now, here's what I will notice about Black Tide is I think he does really, he did really well last time going a mile and an eighth. A little bit longer, could, could, could kind of relax a little bit more on the front end. Uh, he can kind of stretch the field out a little bit more. I think that now that he's going to be cutting back to a sharper distance, he's going to have to be used a little bit more to get to that normal position he likes to normally be in. And these other horses who are all, that were all in that last race are now going to respect him on the front end. They're going to challenge him earlier, and I think that this race will fall apart. I like the two wraps. I think that horse will, will take back, make one run, and they'll have a, he'll have a quick place to run into. And uh, he's 12-1 on the morning line. Should save ground down on the inside. Pop out at the turn with my buddy Manny Franco. I think he could be really tough in this spot. Boy, he really does take himself to another zip code early, though. Aren't you concerned about that? Uh, normally, I would be, especially in New York with uh, with uh, the riders in New York who uh, who uh, have the tendency to do some curls uh, when they're uh, when they're riding in these grass races. <laughs> I, I just don't think that will be a problem with Black Tide in here, especially cutting back. They're going to run early. Uh, he, he's going to be on the engine. He's going to be forwardly placed. Uh, and like I said, I think he'll get challenged earlier than he normally does. Uh, coming off of a win at the quarter pole, he, he could still be free. In a race like this where they know that he could get brave and run away from him, uh, someone will, will come at him earlier, uh, and I think the race will fall apart. All right, we're talking with Jonathan Kinchin, one of the top handicappers in the country, and uh, my producer's telling me I only got four minutes, so I better giddy up and go. Jonathan, who do you like in the Empire Distaff going to mile and a 16th, a quarter million up for grabs? One of the things we do on the show is, is I won't take credit if, if I have to do this for, for the pick, but, man, if, if I like two horses, I'm going to give you two horses. I'm not going to just, you know, limit Good. myself to one. I like the two outside horses. I like the 11 land behind the 12, uh, Bonita Bianca. I think if you follow New York, I don't have to say too much about Jason's service. Uh, this horse has run well at Belmont in the past. It ran well going, uh, going, you know, longer than a mile with Rudy. It's stretching out. Now for, for Jason, I, you know, guys like Jason, that's not an issue for. And then I thought the 11 landmine made a lot of sense for Phil Serpy. Uh, we ran well at Belmont. Those big sweeping turns, you can find a horse for a course at Belmont. Don't always look at how well a horse ran at Saratoga and expect them to run the same race at Belmont. I was very happy that landmine ran a 111 time form U.S. figures, figures that I like to look at. Ran a 111 at Belmont last time. I, I like those two outside horses drawn to the outside can keep an eye on what's going on on the inside and should be able to finish up. All right, Jonathan Kitchen, you're the best. Now we will go over to the boys in the Empire Classic. 300,000, they're going a mile and an eighth. I, I thought Pat on the back for, for Jeremiah Englehart was, was probably the most likely winner drawn outside as well, uh, which isn't nearly as big of a problem as it is at Belmont as it can be at other places. Those big sweeping turns, uh, losing that ground isn't as much torque on the horse uh, where they're getting kind of pushed out, trying, you know, with, with gravity and all that good stuff. I, I think that Pat on the back, like I said, ran a 120 time for him U.S. last time. 
um, has run well at Belmont the last time he was at Belmont, won perfect position. Dylan Davis is, is capable of getting uh, the kind of ride you need. If you're not going to just use one here, you probably need to spread all over the place in these races. But uh, the one that I like the most, the most likely winner, I think is Pat on the back. All right. Again, we're with Jonathan Kitchen, one of the top cappers in the country, and you can hear him a couple times a week on drf.com. And it looks like he's giving me the two minutes to post warning. So let's go back to where you've been for the last two weeks, and that's at beautiful Keeneland, seven furlongs, the Lexus Raven Run. Uh, It looks to me like... uh, nobody's too scared of moonshine memories. It's a full field, but uh, definitely I would have to say that the uh, marks on her back is the one to beat. I'm, I'm hoping you're right about that. I hope she takes some money. She, she, uh, she was special as a two-year-old and, and uh, a quality animal that I'd love to own, but hasn't really lived up to what we would expect her to do after uh, the grade one wins as a two-year-old. Uh, there's two horses in here that I'm interested in. Uh, the, the five Alter Moon was a horse that was privately purchased uh, out of Gulfstream and then sent, uh, pri- privately purchased by Peter Brandt and sent to Chad Brown. The horse didn't run terribly last time, ran into Mia Mischief and Sarah, Sarah, uh, Separation of Powers and two quality, quality fillies. I, I think Alter Moon is one that, that could kind of, you know, takes the new connections a little time to figure her out. I think she might be figured out now. And then Amy's Challenge is a horse that, that I thought uh, drawn down on the rail. Sometimes I like that with horses uh, that have a little bit of speed because I can get the jockeys and tent, uh, get them out of there, send, send away from there rather than uh, raising the horse. She was a filly that I thought uh, always wanted to cut back. However, they were trying to get her to stretch out for the Kentucky Oaks, and then they cut her back in the eight bells. I think that's really confusing for a young horse. It's like, hey, we're going to try to get you to relax and she'll go along. Oh, and then, by the way, we're going to throw you in a 7 race and we're need you to run fast again. Uh, the time off, I think, can maybe allow her brain to reset, and I think she could be tough in here. She was a quality, quality horse earlier in her three-year-old year. All right, Jonathan Kinchin, you're the best. Thanks for spending time with us on Winning Ponies. I want to thank Milton Toby. Remind you, you can join him at the Keeneland Library on Tuesday the 23rd at 6.30. For Winning Ponies, I'm John Engelhart. Remember, when you go to the races, bet with your head not over it. Thanks for listening to Winning Ponies with John Engelhart. We know the information from today's show will help you at the next post. Keep listening for more next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Sports Network.